So we talked through this idol of self. We've talked about this notion of freedom, both personally and historically, nationally. We've, We've talked about various aspects of this. And this morning, I want to land on what we could title the idol of identity. I want to kind of break that down and bring it down to a personal level. How does all of the things that we've been talking about, some of these different aspects of the secular ideologies around us, how does that actually affect and where does it settle when it comes down to us, what it means to be human? Because here's the problem, I think, in this this society around us that has elevated self as God. We want to become our own gods. We covered that in the first week. As we've talked about this self-determined freedom, this individual, expressive, selfish focus, there's been what I would call, and Tyler and others have as well, a vacuum of identity. Where all of a sudden in this place, where we're looking everywhere to try desperately to find ourselves. And I see this in my kids as they grow up. We're in teenage years now with young kids. As they're looking around, as you know, they're, they're fed a certain message and narrative on social media, on advertising through conversations all around them. And as a father, I tell you, there's this grieving and there's this frustration at times with this message. And all I see is this futility of trying to create and curate our own identity, our own humanity, in the midst of this ever-changing fluidity of feelings. It just changes, like the tides. And we've created this never-ending hamster wheel of purpose and meaning. You've just got to try harder. You've just got to look within. It's, it's some, it's dig deeper. Look within yourself. I want to present to us this morning another way, a glorious way to find our identity. And in fact, we already alluded to this last week. We looked at what Os Guinness some of his writings, and he calls the Genesis Declaration. As scriptures begin, it says this this undeniable, unrivaled, unparalleled proclamation of what it means to be human, that we're created in the image of God. Created in His image. And we could camp there, but I do want to go to Ephesians. So if you've got your scriptures open, and I know that there's plenty around us to discourage us, but I tell you what, if you need some encouragement... Ephesians has got to be there as the pick-me-up book. It is just incredibly rich and profound and encouraging in what it proclaims. Many would call this the the high point of Paul's writings. Some would say it's the high high point of the New Testament. Others would argue Romans won't enter into that debate. But let's read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Follow along if you've got your scripture. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Grab a hold of verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. We are chosen. See, it, it doesn't matter if you and I are not the choice of anyone else in our lives, our short, brief period on this planet. He chose us. There's no coincidence, there's no accident. Acts talks about he knew the times and seasons, he knew the family that you'd be placed in. There's an intentionality, there's a purpose, and as we're going to see as this unfolds 
There's a great and undeniable affection and love. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I mean, it's amazing enough, but it gets better. It says, in love, He predestined us. Why did He do it? Because of His love. That's what the story is all about, isn't it? For God so loved. He loved and He continued to love even when we royally messed everything up. And he still continues to love us today. Can someone say, praise God, amen. Amen. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You can't get away from this sovereign intentionality. His his purpose. There's no coincidence, there's no accident. Human history is unfolding in accordance with the plan that he set out before he even laid the foundation of the world. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, his grace, which he lavished upon us. Don't you love that phrase? Not just he, he, he gave us in enough kind of measure to just help us through, just to cover it over. He said he's lavished it. He's lavished this love, this grace, this mercy, this kindness upon us. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to whose purpose? Our purpose? The purpose for our own lives? According to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Honestly, we could just keep going and say amen and leave it there because it's good and it's all good. But there's this incredible reality. There's this declaration of both God's intentionality, but of his love, his purpose, his larger story to our lives. Know what it said? Never once in there that it says, if you really want to know who you are, just look inside. Just, just narrow it down a little bit. Forget, forget all that stuff. But forget all that, you know, before time and purpose. Just, just, just look, look here. Just examine yourself. Look in the mirror and see if you can determine in some self-focused perspective the purpose for which you were created. This is the biblical view, that we are created in the image and the likeness of God, that each person is precious and unique. That's what he's saying. Each and every person is predestined, is purposed in love. Each and every person has a dignity and worth that is inherent and must be respected, not just in a collective sense. It's not just like, well, they're precious as humanity. We are but we're also precious and valued and loved and significant and special on the individual level. Every man, woman and child has been created in his likeness and therefore treasured and unique, precious and of great worth. Nobody is expendable. doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter whether they're poor, uneducated, their mental capacity... We're created in the image of God. Whatever we think about ourselves, whatever we think about others, 
God has made his position clear. We are loved, we are valued, we are special, and we are significant. Not because of our own individual story, but because we're caught up in the greatness and the vastness of his story. A story of his eternal, unfailing, everlasting love. It's the point I want us to grab as we lay this kind of foundation and see. That human beings will never be prized more, I believe, I think it's clear from what we've examined, than when we are seen as the bearers of the image of God. There's no higher sense of human worth and dignity than that. There's nothing that comes close than this reality that we're fearfully, wonderfully made in His image, predestined, purposed, in a love. So let's just think for a moment. See, what we've seen around us, bear that picture in mind and we'll come back to it, is this ever-increasing call for rights, fundamental human rights. And we touched on that last week. The problem is that we're approaching it as a society from this secular point of view and we've traded a God-centered worldview for a secular one. Some aspects of this we've already covered, but when it comes to identity, this is what becomes really clear that we're calling for rights, not realizing that we're cutting off the branch that we're sitting on. We're severing ourselves from their very source. When God is removed, we lose any actual basis for fundamental human rights. When we become our own creator, we end up even losing meaningful categories such as men and women. There, there, is, there is nothing anymore. That's what we end up losing. Now, that's not to suggest that the world around us and secularists don't care about fundamental human rights. They do. And in fact, the, the noise is even louder. But the point is, they have no objective grounds upon which to base their beliefs on. If you follow this through a, a secular humanist point of view, there is no natural rights. And we create a framework that's limited entirely to ourselves, which will always prove at best Small. At best, reductionist. At worst, it will actually prove to be dehumanizing. Now, there's many different people who've written in this area, and I know this is a series which I don't normally do. I've referred you to many books. For those who are interested, you've now got probably about 10 years' worth of reading if you want to delve into any of these different topics. But let me just mention a couple, then we'll come back to scriptures, I promise. I'm trying to paint us a picture of some of the perspectives that are around us but only so that we can see Jesus clear. That's really my heart. As in, We talk about some of these things around us, but the, the desire is so that we set against the darkness the beauty and the clarity and the wonder and the majesty of Christ and who He is and what that means for us. There's an author and a historian, Tom Holland, by the name. He's done what many others have done, um, profiling back the history of human rights. To cut a very long story short, his conclusion is this. He argues that the modern Western concept of human rights has only ever come from Christianity. It's only ever come from a biblical worldview. In fact, this is a quote for him. He says, we want to hang on to the notion of fundamental human rights. We do. We're, we're crying for it. We're calling for it. In his opinion, he says, anyone who does, does so only on the base of unanchored faith. Unanchored faith is his term. That, that's really what it is. 
that it is the Bible, it's a Christian worldview that holds up and says everybody has inherent human rights. Any other view actually is trying to use those principles, but in effect cutting off the branch. Like he goes on, he talks about the fundamental difference between this generation's call for rights and, say, the civil rights movement of the last century, the powerful influence of, say, Martin Luther King Jr. And interestingly, in the midst of that, they were centred around this call to be more Christian, not to be less Christian. See, somehow we've got in our minds that in order for us to discover fundamental human rights, we need to leave the Bible behind. It's, it's old, it's oppressive, it's repressive, it's from the past. We need to discover some rights apart from that. Not realising that that's where all the rights come from in the first place. But previous movements have actually been and demonstrated, as the civil rights movement did, that in order for us to discover who we are as humanity, for us to uphold the equal dignity and worth of every human being, it's not a matter of becoming less biblical. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We need to become more biblical. Because that is the foundation and the fountain from where all these things flow. Another author, uh, Sarah McLaughlin, she writes a book, a few books, including one called The Secular Creed. This is her conclusion. Listen to this. She says, To our 21st century Western ears, love across racial and cultural difference, the equality of men and women, the idea that the poor, oppressed and marginalised can make moral claims on the strong, rich and powerful, they sound like basic moral common sense. But she said, in her opinion, but they are not. These truths have come to us from Christianity. You rip that foundation out and you won't uncover a better basis for human equality and rights. You'll uncover an abyss that cannot even tell you what a human being is. See, this is the danger and this is the tragedy of the path that we're on and what we're losing, not gaining, as we move away from this foundation. We're not gaining a clearer picture of what it is to be a human. We're losing the definition and the clarity of what it is to be a human at all. In fact, she goes on to talk about, this is Sarah McLaughlin again in that particular book, The Secular Creed, the way that even the rights movement is mutually exclusive. For example, there's growing secular fem female feminist scholars who take issue with transgender activism. They feel that it's the exact opposite of what they've stood for and worked for for many years. You know, transgender people competing in um, sex other than their uh, sports, other than their bi biological sex. It's a huge issue and it's causing all sorts of drama, not within just the Christian circles, but within the secular circles themselves. Here's what I want to encourage us is if we look at the words of Christ, if we look at a biblical worldview, far from this being the enemy of rights, oppressive and demeaning as it's often held up to be, biblical Christianity is the original source and the firmest foundation for true diversity, equality and life-transforming love. It is. The church from its earliest days have been, has been a champion of the downtrodden. In Roman society, it was the Christians. They were known. They would pick up the disabled children, the, the poor. They'd bring them in, people who were on the margin, people who were abused or left for dead. And they'd bring them into fellowship. They'd treat them as equals all the way through. It's not been those who are anti-biblical who've truly stood for the foundational tenets of rights and equality. It's been people from a biblical background, with a biblical world 
view. And this is the foundation stone of what it truly means to be human. It's for us to be created in the image of God. Now, I want us to grab that because, hold on to that. There's one more important tenet of, of us. I think sometimes we, we stop there and it's wonderful and it's important. But there's a, another aspect of that that we need as churches to also grab a hold of. See, this incredible picture, and it is, it's a powerful suggestion that men and women are special because God creates us, and that is the foundation of our identity and our worth and our equality before Him and before one another. But that also means something. It means that the true meaning of humanity, both individually and collectively, is the meaning that God designed humanity to have. See, so he's given us rights, he's given us worth, he's given us identity, but then doesn't say, now just go and find that or use that however you desire. He's given us rights and worth, but with a purpose, the purpose for which he has created us for. I know it's a funny example, but I was thinking as I was preparing the message, my father, who's not here this morning, so I'll use his sermon illustration about him in his absence. He may be tuning online, I don't know. But as he approached retirement, he retired six or seven years ago now, and he was thinking of what he could do in retirement. One of the things he did is he amassed this incredible collection of tools, woodworking tools, chainsawing tools. He had a shed full of tools. The funny thing was, was that these tools would adorn the shed and they would never come down for any other purpose other than he'd occasionally give them a bit of a polish for a while, he'd clean them up and then he'd put them back up on the shed for whatever rainy day that he might need these particular tools. And I always used to love getting new tools from him because he'd say, I've got a second-hand hand-me-down and I knew what I was really getting was a, a brand new tool that had never been used. It's just that there was a new model that had superseded it within the last couple of years. Um, the tools did get much more of a workout and a use in my particular shed. But I said to him, I said, Dad, you do know that there's a purpose for tools, right? The purpose is, I mean, they make nice ornaments. They do. They decorate your shelves. They look pretty. It, I mean, it gives you something to do. You can get them down and kind of clean, and you can dream of, of all the different things that maybe you could do one way with the tools. But I said, you know they do actually come for a purpose. And the purpose for the tools is to be used, to be used for certain things, to cut down trees for the glory of God, to create things, to whatever it is. The tools come with a specific purpose. Now that's the same with us. You see, there's no confusion. There's, there's no unfettered subjective meaning that comes with this elevation of rights and, and worth and what it means to be human. God makes it Clear, this is who you were created for. This is how you're called to live as men and women. This is the boundaries through which human flourishing truly takes place. And that takes us really to the final conclusion. Rather than this limited, self-determined hamster wheel. wants to grab this, the biblical view of identity. I mean, just think of that Ephesians passage. In contrast, Christian identity, Christian meaning, Christian purpose, it has a breadth so encompassing it stretches from eternity past to eternity future. It's his story where ordained, created, predestined in love 
This picture, it encompasses and enlightens every breath. And this meaning is fixed, it's immovable, it's unshakable. Your life has inherent worth. You're here breathing oxygen because you are the product of your Father's love. Predestined before He laid the foundation of the world and you're put here for a purpose. Not just to gather dust on the shelf. But you're here to live for His glory as an object of His affection. Regardless of how we feel, there is that certainty of the identity that he offers us. We didn't determine, we didn't derive it based on us. We just get to live in it. So the believer has the capacity to sit back and to savor every angle and perspective. There's no question mark. If we're feeling a bit discouraged, it's just because we're not thinking big enough. We need to open up our eyes and see the, the greatness and the vastness of his plan. Yes, there's stuff going on. Yes, if we focus on the wars and the pandemic, I mean, it's, it's going to drive us to despair. But there's a bigger picture and a reality. There's an anchor for our souls. There's a God who holds the whole world, including the details of our lives, in the palms of his hand. Let's get, um, where's Carol? Is she in here, by keys? That'd be wonderful. We finish with C.S. Lewis. He says this, the great, wonderful Christian author. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more we truly become ourselves. Isn't that incredible? The Christian view is the exact opposite to what the world's telling us. Just look inside. And I think tragically... As a church, we've sort of borrowed that. We put a bit of a Christian spin on it. But I remember in certain youth conferences growing up, it was always, you know, God's given you a purpose, so just look within you. Just find your purpose here. Just think of your dreams. Just take personality tests, and if you don't like them, just do another one until you find one you like, and you, you can kind of create this, this personal sense of, of who you are. Whereas the Bible actually proclaims and tells us the exact opposite, doesn't it? doesn't say think small, think here. It says just, just look up, just for a moment. Just look up and see him. The more we behold who he is, the more we truly see who we are. The only way to truly discover what it is to be human, to be us, to be what we've called to be, is found not in getting the Bible out of the way or watering it down, but it's coming back being transformed and renewed by the glorious reality of who he is and this incredible unfolding plan of salvation that he is outworking. Corey Ten Boom said this, she says, we look within, we're depressed. We look without, we're distressed. But we look to Christ and we're at rest. I just want to encourage us to do that this morning as we bring this time to a close. If you want to put your Bibles away, I want to pray for us and just give us this encouragement. I had a, always way the, I always love the way the Lord uses my little girls at times just to encourage and speak, and sometimes they, they even realize. I think what it is that they're 
imparting, but I had one of my little girl and all four of our kids go to, to um, Trinity Christian School, so Christian, Christian environment. And then number three, little Lily, she came, came home after school one day this week. She's like, Dad, you're not going to believe this. I said, what is it, sweetie? She's like, oh, we're in class. And the teacher, she read out this father's love letter. Who remembers the father's love letter? Like, I came across that maybe 15, 20 years ago. She's like, you you wouldn't believe it. Someone's put together these passages of scripture, and it's all about how much God loves me. Like, she's just bursting forth with this encounter of, like, like he actually, he loves me. It's the father's love letter. I'm like, sweetie, I know. It's great. It's amazing. It's fantastic. Didn't think much more of it. And then a couple of days later, it was early in the week, later in the week, she's like, Daddy, look what I've got. And, and she'd come home, and I've got it here. She had got her teacher to print her out, a little copy of the Father's Love Letter. She's like, Dad, I've got it here. And I, I just I knew you needed to, to, to have it. Maybe you could use it in your sermon this week, she said. I said exactly what she said. So, all right, sweetie, I'll see if I can work it in there. And, but if you haven't come across it, this is... Uh, I've seen a few different iterations and versions, but it is a collection just of scripture passages that is the heart of Father God to us. It's his heart for us. And I'm not going to read the whole thing and take time to do that. I know many of us would you can look it up. I just want to close your eyes. I want to pray for us in that vein that this morning would be a moment in the midst of all the other stuff going around. This is really my heart but that we would capture that enthusiasm of my little girl this week who just encountered in some fresh and new way the greatness of the love that her Heavenly Father had for her. The greatness of His love. The excitement that just exuded. Daddy, He loves me. Like This is His letter to me. He formed me. Fearfully and wonderfully before, before He laid the foundations the world. He purposed me in love. Just the the security, the stability, the joy, the peace that that brings. Resting in that reality of His love. So Father, this morning, I want to pray for each and every one of us. And my prayer is simply this, that we would have some way this morning that enthusiasm of a little child. A little child just encountering a daddy's love for the first time. You yourself, Jesus, you said, if you want to come in the kingdom, it's not your, your intellect and your wisdom and all that you can work up. You've got to come as a little child. So I pray, Lord, that in, in the midst of all that we've discussed this week and over the the last few weeks, that there'd be that reality that you love us. That all the other issues of our life it hinges and it flows from that one central reality that you so loved. But I pray that for Anyone here where there are things that are hanging around that would cloud our our understanding, our experience, the greatness of who you are? Or if there's stuff that's 
weighing us down. If there's fear, if there's doubt, if there's uncertainty, well, let's pray in the, in the holiness and the quietness of this moment. Just through your, your gen, the gentle drawing of your Holy Spirit, as Philippians talks about, that we'd come and we'd lay before you, or literally it says cast before you, every burden that we carry, that we might know again your peace power of your promise and that that would hold us steady and on that stable foundation that we might be a people who proclaim to an ever darkening world the greatness of who you are the power of your promise that we can find and experience personally deeply, experientially in our hearts and minds just intentionally choose to behold you this morning. Second Corinthians says, and as we behold you to become more like you, formed in not only to your image, but to the image that you've created us in, discovering more of who we truly are. I particularly want to pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who does really struggle with that sense of identity, who I am whether they're young, whether they're old, regardless of their past. Father, I pray that there would be not not just that revelation, but there would be that experiential reality, that capacity for them to look away from themselves and look to you. to really recognize that reality of who you've created them to be. Ask them.